It's time now to turn our attention to God's Word, and this morning we will find ourselves in Acts chapter 13. This morning we are beginning a new series of sermons for our time together on Sunday mornings. This series, as you can see by uh, the notes in front of you, is called Not by Bread Alone, Fasting, Prayer, and the Pursuit of God. And as you might guess, this series deals with the topics of prayer and fasting. And as you hear that title, you may think to yourself, why this series? Why are we going through this particular topic now? And the reality is that several years ago, this church emphasized a regular, voluntary, monthly day of prayer and fasting together. And unintentionally, that fell by the wayside as something that was not uh, promoted in the same way, that was not emphasized in the same way. And over the last few months, as the elders have sought continually uh, to, to pray for you and to think about what is best for us together as the body of Christ, one of the things that we have come to the conclusion and the conviction of is that that, that practice, that regular spiritual discipline together as the body of Christ should be emphasized again. And we realize that in saying that and putting that forward, that uh, the church is in a different place than it was several years ago when we first began that. There are, in fact, many of you here today before who may have never heard about fasting before, Christian fasting anyway. You may not have ever even thought about uh, what it means to fast as a Christian. Some of you are new to the faith and may not have any idea what we're talking about. So we decided that it would be best to, uh, to present a series unfolding biblically what it means to come together as the people of God, to pray and to fast uh, together. We also know that some of you uh, may have been exposed to false teaching about uh, fasting and prayer. In fact, just this week, as I was doing research, I came across all kinds of things out there uh, on the internet and in books that do not accurately reflect what the Bible teaches about these things. And so out of a desire to teach and to encourage, we want to spend some time over the next few weeks thinking about fasting and what role it has in our lives individually as Christians and in our lives together as God's people. And if you want to look ahead, you want to study ahead, uh, it's a little bit more difficult because it's not just moving through a book like we usually do. We just read the next chapter or whatever. Uh, on, uh, in the bulletin under the sermon series section, there is a listing of all the passages that we will cover and the topics that are there. And so we encourage you to look at that uh, if you desire to, to read and study ahead. We are beginning our series in Acts 13, though, and before we get there, I want to remind ourselves of the context of the book of Acts. Perhaps you've never read it, and it's important that we see where chapter 13 fits in uh, the context of the whole book. In the very first chapter of Acts, just before Jesus ascends to the Father in heaven, having been raised from the dead, after dying on the cross, he tells his disciples this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's basically your outline for the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that's exactly what happens in the book. It is a summary of God's plan to take the gospel from the disciples in Jerusalem among the Jewish people and to take it to the very ends of the earth. And you can see this plan uh, unfolding and being fulfilled as you read each successive chapter as God's people are filled and empowered by God's Spirit and are seeking to advance His kingdom. We see in chapters 1 through 7 the gospel going out from Jerusalem to all Judea and then in chapter 8 to Samaria just as Christ said it should do. That step out of Jerusalem and out of Judaism itself came as, deacon, as the, the, one of the first deacons, Stephen, was stoned to death as the first Christian martyr. 
This set off a plan of persecution by the Jews that drove the church out of their immediate area, out of the place where they had grown up, out of all that was familiar, out into the nations. And the result was the gospel went with them. And we see the beginnings of this as Philip explains how Christ comes and fulfills the prophetic word of Isaiah 53 and an Ethiopian eunuch believes and is baptized. In chapter 9, we see the great Jewish persecutor of the church, Saul, is converted to Christianity as the risen Christ himself appears to him and reveals who he is and what he has done. He preaches the gospel to Paul and, and to Saul and tells him, I'm not just calling you to, to true faith in me, to understand who I am as God and Savior and Lord, but also to serve me, not just among your own people, but among the nations of the world. The very next chapter, we see... Again, the, the progress of the gospel expanding out from uh, the, the, the center of Judaism as Cornelius is converted. He is significant because though he is fully Gentile, he worships as a Jew. He goes to the temple. He offers the sacrifices. He prays to the one true God of Israel. He gives alms, and yet he is not circumcised. So he is not considered a Jew, but rather he is honored with the, the title God-fearer. And it's in the very next chapter we see the gospel going to those who have absolutely no connection to Judaism whatsoever. The, the fullness of the plan of God's gospel penetrating the nations begins as we see the city of Antioch receiving the gospel and Greeks turning towards faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, not only do these people have no connection to Judaism whatsoever and yet receive the fullness of God's spirit as they profess faith in Christ, it was in fact... Their faith that was so obvious and the change so dramatic in their life that Luke tells us it is in fact here that God's people were first called Christians, which was meant to be a derogatory term and yet was in fact the highest compliment they can be paid as the term Christian means little Christ. When they looked at the believers in Antioch, they say, I see Jesus, I see Jesus, I see Jesus, I see Jesus. And now we look at chapter 13 and we see the next major step forward in the plan of God. And it's in that context that we also see something about the nature of prayer and fasting. So we're going to begin at the, the verse just previous to this, chapter 12, verse 25. And I encourage you to follow along as we read. <coughs> Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Sit apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus." May God bless the reading of his word. From these verses in Acts 13, we begin to see a biblical picture of fasting beginning to emerge. Certainly this is not all the Bible says or the New Testament says about it. And yet it's from this example of prayer and fasting that we begin to see the pattern that should be set for us as well. We see here specifically that it's through the gathering together of God's people in prayer and fasting that God actually advances his plan in the world. So what should we do in light of this passage? What can we learn about prayer and fasting and the plan of God in history? We should see 
three things, three things that we should not only understand, but that we ourselves should do in following the example of the early church. First of all, we see that we should fast together as God's people. We should fast together as God's people. Barnabas and Saul, just to give you a bit of a a refresher, Barnabas and Saul have spent a year in Antioch preaching and teaching, seeing the church grow and discipling these Christians into maturity. And if you remember back in Acts 11, these young Christians heard a prophecy about a famine that was coming to Jerusalem. And they know there is a large part of the church that exists in Jerusalem. And so it was decided to take up a collection from all the Gentile churches to support and, and, uh, and help out the Christians who were Jews in Jerusalem. And now that's been done. They have gathered that collection. It has been uh, um, uh, taken to where it needs to, and these people are back in Antioch ministering to the, quest- to the Christians there, and there is a question in their mind, and that is this, what do we do now? God has clearly given us information that led us to serve him, but now what do we do? On one level, they knew what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to make disciples, because that's what, that's what Jesus told them, right? When he raised from the dead, he said, you're going to go everywhere and you're going to preach the gospel and you're going to make disciples in the language of Matthew as he records it. And so they know what they have to do. And in fact, they even know how they're supposed to do it. They know that it is through the preaching of the word of God that disciples are made. Even in the collection of uh, money for, to support this famine relief going on in Jerusalem, it was, a, it was an expression of brotherly love that may have clued people in that something is interesting about these Christians. But no one got saved by watching that. They needed to actually hear the gospel about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. That he was God's provision out of love that those who are wicked and rebellious against him and deserve an eternity of hell can actually have an eternity of life with God because of what Jesus did. They need to hear that message and believe in order to be saved. They know what to do, make disciples. They knew how to do it, that is, proclaim the gospel of Christ. But the question was, where are they going to do that? The church was well established in Antioch. It was growing, and there was certainly local evangelism to be done. But there was more to the Great Commission than just stay where you are and evangelize. It was go to the ends of the earth. And with this question in mind, they began, we see, to worship and fast together. Luke tells us this is how they sought God's direction to the questions that were in their minds. And notice they didn't go their separate ways. They didn't go off and come up with their own ideas. Again, they were together in prayer and fasting. It was then, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now often when we think about fasting, we think about it on an individual basis. We think about this is something I do personally and privately. In fact, Jesus seems to encourage that. And we'll, when we get to the passage in Matthew 6 in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about why that's not in conflict with what the early church does here in coming together for fasting. But in fact, when you look at the scriptures themselves, the Old and New Testaments, there are actually 27 examples across biblical history of God's people, not just individually, but corporately coming together in order to seek God's face in prayer and fasting. So you ask yourself, why should we do that? It's one thing to see the examples, but the question is, what practical benefit is there 
for coming together for this spiritual discipline. One reason, I think, is because it shows us to be living in unity as God's people. It shows that we are of the same mind, that we are of the same attitude, that we are moving together in the same direction. That we are united even as Jesus prayed for us in Matthew or in, in John 17. Uh, have you ever thought about that before? Well, Jesus is about to go to the cross and one of the things that he does, we see in John's Gospels, is he spends more time talking to the disciples about the relationship between him and the Father and the Spirit more than anything else. And in John 17, there's this long prayer where, where Jesus says, I pray not just for those that can hear, but for all who will believe through the testimony of their, uh, of their word. In other words, Jesus prayed for you as a Christian. In John 17, what's recorded there? Before he goes to the cross. And one of the things he prayed for was, Father, just as you and I are united together in love and purpose, so may my people. That's amazing. Think about the eternal glorious and perfect fellowship within Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune Godhead. And he says, I want my people to look like that as well. And that's one of the, that's one of the byproducts that comes from gathering together for some spiritual discipline. We can all pray at home. But when we come together and pray, when we come together for fasting, then it is, it is not only signaling to the world and to ourselves, but is also cultivating a spirit of unity that God himself desires us to have. More than that, I think it provides encouragement to us when we come together to fast and to pray. I've noticed that one of the interesting things, have you ever read these accounts where someone's like, the plane crashes and they're stranded, or it's a bad blizzard and they get lost. And, you know, there's lots of con- survival concerns, right? There's, there's food and there's shelter and there's warmth. But one of the things that I've noticed that before any of that, one of the first things almost always that the person says is, I was afraid because I knew I was all alone. And at first I didn't catch that. But then I, I noticed that over and over again. You watch the 2020s and you watch the Lines, And one of the first things I thought was, oh my goodness, I, you know, I was so scared because I realized I was all alone. It wasn't I'm not going to have food. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to starve to death. It wasn't I'm going to freeze to death. It was I'm all alone. And the more I thought about that, the more it kind of reinforced to me the biblical idea that God's people are meant to live in community. But what does God say right at the very beginning? It is not good that man be alone, right? Obviously the context of marriage, but it points to a larger a larger biblical pattern of community. God himself exists perfectly, eternally in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he desires us to come together in community as well. One of the greatest lies that Satan tells us is that we are alone in what we're going through and in where we're at and what we're seeking to do. He tells us nobody else is with you. Nobody else is behind you. Nobody else has been here before. You are all alone. And if we buy that lie, what happens? We get discouraged and we give up and we pack it in and and we don't do what we're supposed to do. Now, on a human level, you might be all alone. There are people like Martin Luther, right, who had nobody behind him and they knew this is the right thing to do. And the course of history sits on their shoulders. But by God's grace, they were able to do that. And there will be times when maybe it's at work. And and there's rampant thievery going on, and you just have to say, I I cannot be a part of that, and you're standing alone. On a human level, you may feel like you're standing alone. But on on a more significant spiritual level, God promises you are never alone if you're one of his people. Because he has given you his spirit, and by that spirit, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you because I have united you to my son. And he has been human. 
He continues to be perfectly God and perfectly man. And he's endured every temptation that you're going to go through. And he has succeeded. And yet he knows, he knows the stress of the situation and is there to encourage you. So on a more profound level, what can be more encouraging than to know you're never alone because God is with you. And yet, and yet, have you ever been to a church service when the attendance is really thin? You know, if it's like a blizzard out and we're like, well, you know, stay home if it's not safe. But if you can come, come. Then it's like when five people show up, you're like, praise the Lord. You made it. Let, let's, let's have sweet worship. But when you just know that, you know, people are always off on vacation, doing things. We, we don't begrudge that. But when just, you know, just a normal week and there's like nobody here. For me, that's discouraging. And not just because I'm the preacher. I'm just looking around thinking, where is everybody at? What, what, what is going on? What, when you are desiring to give up food, which is a normal part of our life, it's a good thing in our life that God has given to us, and it becomes difficult when the hunger pains come and you think, man, am I going to be able to do this? And, and maybe, you know, it's at the end of a day you've been fasting, you stand up too fast to get lightheaded, you think, man, is this all worth it? And then you, and then you, then you remember that person next to you said they were going to be fasting today. And the person in front of you and the person who lives down the street who are all part of this thing called the people of God seen in Crossway Church. And you realize suddenly there are people gathered together with you in prayer and fasting. Suddenly there's encouragement that's there that, that God uses to help you continue on in this spiritual discipline. This is why the early church gathers together. It is not just to show that they're unified, but it's for mutual encouragement. That they might know there are other people together with us seeking God's face. And in fact, that's, that leads us to the second direction that we see in our passage. That when we come together to fast, we do so desiring to fast in order to seek God's face. We should fast to seek God's face. Here's what we just need to, we just need to, to, to say. There are a lot of crazy ideas both outside the church but also inside the church about what fasting is all about. And, and the truth be told, there are, there are a wide range of uses for fasting, right? Uh, being married to a, a nurse, I know there are certain tests that you take and you have to fast before you go in for that test. There are certain uh, procedures where we will be under anesthesia and it is good for you not to have anything in your stomach. It's good to fast. But biblically speaking, why do we fast? And again, we see... Uh, all kinds of crazy things out there. In fact, just this week, we, you know, we just finished Daniel, and I saw this book, The Daniel Fast. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, I wonder what's that about. So I cracked open the book, and I read through it a little bit, trying to figure out what is the author seeking to say. And sadly, um, I have to say the author revealed that uh, she didn't know much about Daniel's fast, and she knew even little about fasting in general. I mean, there's a, it's a 200-page book about fasting, and 150 pages are recipes. Think about that. There's something fundamentally wrong with that. Biblical fasting is not about health or weight loss. Don't get me wrong. Despite my appearance, I'm all for somebody trying to be healthy. But when you look to the Bible, when you think about Christian fasting, that's not the direction you should be headed. It's not, I'm going to fast or to be healthy. Biblically, that's, that's not the point. Fasting is about the pursuit of God, not the pursuit of health. Secondly, fasting is not about twisting God's arm. Fasting is not meant to be a kind of willpower religion. It's not a hunger strike. The point isn't to show God, hey, I can hold out for food and I'm going to keep doing it until you answer my prayer. I mean, that's how you hear it described sometimes, isn't it? I really want God to answer this prayer, so I'm going to fast. Well, what does that mean? 
I mean, do you think you've kind of got, you know, God in a half Nelson saying, you better, you better answer this request. I'm not going to eat until you do. It kind of reminds me of this old episode of Andy Griffith one time where Opie had been hanging out with uh, this new kid who wasn't, wasn't a very nice kid. And he had all kinds of bad habits, and he was very manipulative and, and would uh, do things like hold his breath or throw himself on the ground and, and pitch a, a tantrum because he knew his father would give in and give him whatever he asked for. And so Opie observed this behavior and thought, well, this is great, and he wants a, a new bike or whatever it is. So he's asking uh, Andy for it, and Andy says, no, we, you know, you, you, the old bike's just fine. And so Opie <gasps> holds his breath. And his, Andy's doing paperwork, and they're in the office. He says, what you doing, son? And he goes, I'm holding my breath until you give me that bike. <gasps> and he says, well, that's great. Holding your breath is good for your lungs. And, and just completely is unfazed by this strong-arm tactic. And, and frankly, God is unfazed by any strong-arm tactic that we would think to try and outwill him. That sort of manipulation is just silly and wrong. And believing that fasting can be used that way is also wrong. So what is fasting, positively speaking? Notice again how Luke describes it in our passage. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying again, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I think Luke wants us to see a connection between worship and prayer and fasting and the guidance that comes from God's Spirit in such a way that we understand that fasting is about seeking God's face. We alluded to it earlier and want to make it clear here. Fasting is about seeking God. It's about pursuing Him. It's about showing how much we desire Him to be among us and with us, to be in His presence. It's giving up food or any good thing in order to pursue God. Fasting is usually associated with food. That's the most common thing. But it doesn't have to be just food. In fact, Paul kind of in a reverse way, tells us that in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that uh, in order to prevent temptation and, and so many other things and, and to display the pattern of godly marriage, a married couple should not stop doing things that only married couples do unless it is for the express purpose of an extended time of prayer and by mutual agreement. So there is... so so. Fasting can be from marital relations in order to have an extended time for prayer. And we see this principle uh, emerge that it doesn't just have to be about food. It might be from any number of things. It might be from social media or from technology or from television or from movies or from some hobby. It can be any specific activity. Now, some people have said, yeah, I'm going to stop doing, you know, uh, whatever this sinful activity is. In order, I'm going to fast from that in order to seek God. And I say, well, wait a minute. It's sin. You just stop doing that automatically. You don't take a fast from it to see God. You just stop. You stop sinning. So, so, so it's not like I'm going to give this bad thing for a while. I'm going I'm to give up getting drunk in order to fast. No, 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 no. No, you, you, you give up something good that God has given to you, a good gift to say, I want more of the giver and, and not so much of the gift. That, that's what fasting is about. It's about giving up something good to more intently pursue God. So in his uh, amazing book, Sermon on the Mount, I think there's actually a copy in the bookshop, Martin Lord-Jones says this, Fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. 
There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which, for special particular reasons and certain circumstances, should be controlled. That is fasting. Likewise, John Piper is helpful when he says this, Fasting is not a no to the goodness of food or the generosity of God in providing it. Rather, it is a way of saying from time to time that having more, more of the giver surpasses the gift. Food is good, but God is better. So in other words, don't say, okay, I'm going to fast. I'm going to skip a meal, and so that way I'm going to get caught up on reading my favorite uh, detective novels, or so I can spend more time chatting on Facebook, or I, think I can get caught up on my, my sewing hobby, or whatever it is. That, that, that's not the point. The point is not I have more free time, I'm denying myself, and somehow it's, it's going to put me more in tune with God. No, the point is you give up this good thing to actively pursue God. You give up the meal or whatever it is to get alone and get together with God in prayer. You you pick up the Bible and you actually read it. You seek his face that you might hear his voice. And and friends, that is why the elders are calling our church to engage in this spiritual activity together. We want to encourage you to seek God's face. We want to encourage you to train the palate of your soul to desire the taste of God's glory more than the taste of the best food or anything else in this world. We want to encourage us together as God's people, as a faith family, to desire more of God and to come to depend more on Him in prayer than anything else in the world. We should fast together as God's people. We should fast to seek God's face. And finally this morning we want to see that we should fast to advance God's plan. We should fast to advance God's plan. Throughout the Bible we see God working out His sovereign decree, His his plan for the world and for all things. But he doesn't just snap his fingers and make it happen, as it were. God uses a means to accomplish his purposes. So is God totally and completely sovereign? Yes. Does everything that happens, happens according to his sovereign will? Yes. But does that mean he does not use means to accomplish his purposes? No. He does. One of the means he uses at key moments in the history of redemption is the prayerful fasting of his people. Let's just think about some examples here. We could do... Probably four times as many, but here's the highlights. Go back to the book of Exodus. Remember, Israel has been redeemed out of Egypt, and what do they immediately do? Moses has gone a little too long, and they immediately go back to sinful idolatry. They've seen the mighty hand of God in their redemption, and yet they reject what he has said. And though Moses is disgusted by his actions, he nevertheless earnestly prays that God would forgive them, spare them from the judgment they deserve, and continue to be their people. He prays and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens at the end? The Ten Commandments come down in Moses' hands off Mount Sinai from the presence of the glory of God. Law that summarized God's eternal, faithful covenant for his people. The book of 1 Samuel opens with a mother grieving before God over her barrenness. She pleads before the Lord to give up, as she gives up, food and the regular meal with her family year by year by year as they go to offer sacrifice to the temple she pleads with god give me a son give me a son and i will give him back to you and the lord answers her prayer samuel is born and she dedicates him to the lord and when we look in the course of biblical history samuel stands as one of the the giants among god's people he is one of the greatest prophets that 
has ever existed. He stands as the, the transition man between the period of the judges and the anointing of King David, the most significant spiritual figure probably besides Abraham in Old Testament history. In 2 Chronicles 19, King Jehoshaphat tries to reverse decades of sin among God's people by instituting social and religious reform. He says, basically, let's get back to the covenant. Let's get back to doing the, way, the things the way God said we should do. And, of course, Satan is not happy with that. He would rather have a, a disintegrating, morally corrupt Israel than any Israel at all. So, so he puts it in the heart of Judah's neighbors, the Moabites and the Ammonites, to unite together and make war against Israel. And they appear unstoppable. And Jehoshaphat knows there is no human way that we can defeat these enemies. What does he do? He calls the nation to a fast. In fact, the nation is only half at that point. It's just the tribe, it's just the nation of Judah. And he calls them all together to pray and to fast and to seek God's face. And what happens? A prophet comes forward and assures them victory. So they go out the next day. And what do they find? Piles of the bodies of their enemies. In the night, God has provoked them to turn on one another and destroy themselves. And it takes the Israelite army three days to collect all of the supplies and the riches and the treasure from their fallen enemies. Decades later, through the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel reads that God has promised to bring his people back from exile for their sins. And that leads him to pray and fast that God would keep his word even as Babylon falls, Cyrus issues the decree that allows God's people to return. And as those returning exiles begin to rebuild the people of God in Jerusalem, Nehemiah hears the news that they have encountered resistance and the work has stopped. Jerusalem is still in shambles and Israel as a people are faltering and barely hanging on. And that leads him to four months of prayer and fasting. Now, at the end of those four months, God provides for him an opportunity to return to Israel with the authority and financing of a pagan king to rebuild Jerusalem and establish the people in the land. The New Testament opens with the Son of God taking on flesh, beginning his ministry by what? Going into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, praying and fasting, enduring temptation, revealing he is the new Adam and the true Israel, the perfect Savior for his people. Again and again and again, at key moments in biblical history, God uses the means of the prayer and fasting of his people to advance his plan in the world. And we see that in Acts 13 as well. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What happened when Paul and Barnabas were sent off? Quite literally, the world was changed. It was turned upside down. Paul became the tip of a gospel spear that penetrated all of the major regions in the Roman Empire, transforming lives and cities as the truth of Christ took root and churches were established. Just sit down and read through Acts chapter 13 to the rest of the book, 28, this afternoon. See, Paul stated at the Areopagus, the, 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 the philosophical debate house of, of, the, of the Western world at that time. All of the great philosophies and religion were discussed. And he stands before all of these men and he declares the foolishness of their idolatry in light of the risen Christ. 
We see the city of Ephesus literally turned upside down as people riot because the gospel has become so pervasive that people have stopped buying the tchotchke idols in the marketplace. The idol industry has gone to zero. And so all of those idol makers and result in, in remaining pagans rise up in, in hours rioting against the Christians. We see Paul arrested for preaching the gospel and then continuing to preach the gospel so that on every level of government as he issues appeal after appeal after appeal. I love Paul. They say basically you can go free. He says, no, I think I'll, I think I'll appeal instead. Okay. Why does he do that? Because he just gets moved from place to place to place under Roman care. Guards hear the gospel again and again and again and are saved. So much so he writes the Philippians and he says, the Christians in Caesar's household send you greetings. Paul says, I'll stay in prison because I know I can get all the way to Caesar's household with the gospel. All along these turning points throughout biblical history, God has both revealed his plan for the world and set it in motion by the fervent prayer and fasting of his people. And that plan isn't finished. Christ has not returned and there is still more to be done. And I wonder, will we be among those who sit on the sidelines who sit on the side of the road and just watch it happen? Or are we going to be among those who are on the front line, praying and fasting up to our elbows in the work that God has decreed should happen? That doesn't necessarily mean that each and every one of us is going to get up and go to the ends of the earth. It might. But it doesn't have to mean that. Instead, it just means that maybe we stay here and we pray and we fast and God uses that as the means by which he calls others to go. And he he breaks down walls of resistance among nations. And he opens up closed countries. And he even brings revival to our own land. Will we show God how much we desire him? How much we long to be used by him? Not in safe and easy ways, but in hard ways that reveal more brightly his glory and more quickly advance his kingdom? Will we be willing to become a people who hunger for God more than we hunger for food? Will we be a people who desire God more than his gifts? In the late 1800s, the Christians in South Korea were few, and they faced heavy persecution from Japanese invaders who tried to force them to engage in Shintoistic worship. In desperation, they sought God like never before. They established little retreat centers up in the mountains where they would pray and they would fast. And it is said from those who wrote down accounts that anyone who passed by those mountains would hear the cries and the weeping of the men and women who were storming heaven with their sad plight and asking God to change their situation. From then on, prayer and fasting have been the hallmarks of the strong South Korean church. In fact, 1907 revival broke out among South Korea. Where are they at today? As of a few years ago, South Korea has over 15.5 million Christians. They send out over 13,000 long-term cross-cultural missionaries. That's more missionaries than any other country except the United States. Get in your minds, size the United States, size of South Korea, and they're second in sending out international missionaries. But when you look at per capita missionary to congregation, Korea sends out one missionary for every 4.2 churches, which places it 11th in the world. The United States does not even rank in the top 10. Furthermore, Korea sends 34 of its missionaries to unreached peoples. Those are the places where they don't want Christians there. They might even kill them, and it's the hardest areas of work. 
34% of their missionaries go there. The international average is 10%. Now, when I read that, I, I cannot help but ask, why has God blessed them so much? Where does their fervency and their fire and their passion for God come from? And then I read this testimony of a man who grew up in Korea. Here's what he says. I grew up on the mission field in Korea. There's one experience emblazoned on my mind to show the sacrificial dedication to prayer and fasting in Korea. My father worked with a leper colony, and they had prayer meetings that met at 4 o'clock in the morning. I was a little boy, but my father took me with him, getting me up at 3 a.m. to get there on time. He sat me down in the back where I could see out the door. And I'll never forget one man who had no legs, no crutches, and was using his hands, crabbing along on the, dra- on the ground, dragging his body to pray at 4 a.m. I will never forget that. Why has God blessed the church in Korea so much? Perhaps it's because they have a deep, abiding hunger for God that outstrips their hunger for anything else in this world. Will we be that kind of people? Heavenly Father, when we hear those testimonies of your people, we cannot help but give you thanks. For we know ultimately that such a life is simply the manifestation of your grace at work. Father, we want that grace for ourselves as well. I want that for me. I want that for your people, not just in this church, but in this country. A church that has largely fallen asleep, God, when compared with the global advance of Christianity around the world. Father, I pray that we would be a people who desire you more than anything else, who desire you more than food, more than family, more than any of the good gifts that you have given to us. Father, make us a people who hunger for you, who seek you through prayer and fasting in your word, that we might not only come close to you, God, but that we might be changed by you, that we might be more effective, God, in the ministry that we do, and that the holiness of our lives might shine more brightly for your glory. Father, only you can do this. And so even now we pray to you and we ask that you would do it. We ask it for the sake of Christ's name in the city and around the world. Amen. In prayerful response to the message this morning,